0: I'm always grateful for the opportunity to expound God's Word. This is a sermon I originally wrote to deliver out at Evergreen, um, and with a few adjustments, um, I think it was suitable to bring to you here this evening. Um, Let's briefly put this passage in context before we get into the exposition. The Apostle Paul is imprisoned, and he appears to be in some material distress. He's writing to the saints at Philippi in Macedonia which is a church that he founded. It was Paul who told them the good news. And there's a relationship here. There's a relationship between him and the Philippians. We can call them friends, but they're more than friends. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. And he is also, in a sense, their spiritual father. Paul speaks very fondly of the Philippians in the opening lines of the letter. He writes, I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's chapter 1, 7b through 8. The letter is framed in the context of thanking the Philippians for their support. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, he writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you, all, for, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It appears from Philippians 2.25 that Paul's letter was delivered to the church in Philippi by Epaphroditus who had come to visit Paul and brought with him a gift of support. Paul likely sent him home with this letter. While some commentators have questioned it, I am persuaded from the text that Paul wrote this epistle while he was imprisoned in Rome, awaiting decision on his appeal, as it was set up in Acts chapter 25. This evening, I'm going to first walk through the text with you, and then I will have some points of application. So let's look at the text. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to have it open. Um, We're beginning with verse 14 of chapter 4. And verse 14 reads, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble." Verse 14 is transitional. It changes the subject from Paul's discussion in verses 10 through 13 of his contentment. He has just told the reader that he is empowered by Christ to be content whatever his circumstances. But he is now acknowledging the support that the Philippians sent him. Paul tells them that they were kind. He also refers to what they did in sending him a gift as sharing his trouble This refers back to verse 1-7, where he says, You are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul then goes on to verse 15, which reads, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. The main idea of verse 15 is recognition of and thanksgiving for the faithfulness the Philippians have shown in supporting Paul. They've been partnering with him in ministry by providing financial support ever since he founded their church. There is a phrase here in verse 15 that perhaps warrants some explication. Paul refers to the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia. That may have you scratching your head a bit. Um, It certainly did me when I first studied this. It seems odd. If If I was asked when the gospel began, I might tell you that it was before the creation of the world when God ordained his plan of salvation. Alternatively, we might say that it began with the birth of Christ and with his earthly ministry, or perhaps with his death and resurrection. At the very latest, we might say it began in Acts chapter 2 with Peter's sermon. Paul was not converted until later, and his visit to Macedonia was clearly years later. So what does he mean here? Commentators have made a few suggestions, but I am persuaded that Paul is referring to the beginning of his ministry as the leader of his own ministry team, prior to the ends of Acts 15, Paul was working with Barnabas. The two of them had a falling out, which is recorded for us in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 40, over whether to bring John Mark with them on their next journey. They split up, and Paul took Silas and departed off on his own. They picked up Timothy in Derby in the opening lines of Acts 16, starting in Acts 16:6. When Paul has his vision and receives the Macedonian call, we see him as the clear leader of his own ministry. He is coming into his own as an apostle. I think the best reading of the phrase, the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, is a rhetorical way of referring to this transition. Focusing back on the big picture of verse 15, remember, in Acts 16, Paul received a vision from God telling him to go and minister in Macedonia. Paul went, and he took Timothy with him. Philippi was the first city he visited. He preached the gospel there. We have the account of the conversion of Lydia and her household, as well as of Paul and Silas being beaten and imprisoned for casting the unclean spirit out of a slave girl who was telling fortunes. Then, through God's grace, the Philippian jailer is converted and baptized along with his household. Paul and Silas are eventually told by the magistrates to leave the city, and they do. Paul credits the Philippians with being the only church that supported him at that time. They were newly converted believers, yet they immediately started helping Paul with material support. Paul terms this entering into partnership. This is a common phrase used today when we talk about supporting ministries and missionaries. Sometimes it feels like a polite euphemism that's used when the speaker is asking for money but doesn't want to come out and say so. That may be true, but we should not let it be robbed of its meaning. It takes resources to do ministry. It takes resources to feed, clothe, and house those who do it. As I will discuss later, Paul was often reluctant to accept support from others, but he accepted it from the Philippian church on more than one occasion. He recognized them as partners. And interestingly, the Greek words translated in our Bibles as giving and receiving have commercial connotations. They refer to the keeping of commercial accounts. Paul recognizes the Philippian believers as true partners in his ministry. They send and he goes. That brings us to verse 16. Verse 16 reads, Even in Thessalonica... You sent me help for my needs once and again. After being asked to leave Philippi, Paul moved on to Thessalonica. We knew that Paul stayed in Thessalonica for three Sabbath days, so he was there for a few weeks. Paul got a similar reception there from the Jews and governing authorities as he had received in Philippi. But we also know his ministry bore great fruit. Acts 17.4 tells us that some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. The pronoun translated them refers to the Jews, so we, but we know both Greeks and Jews were converted in Thessalonica under Paul's ministry. We know from 2 Thessalonians 3, 8, that Paul worked likely at his trade as a tent maker when he was in Thessalonica. It says, with toil and labor we worked night and day that we may, might not be a burden to any of you. I'll say more about that momentarily, but despite his working to support himself, verse 16 here tells us that Paul received financial support from the Philippians he had just left. The phrase, once and again, tells us that he received his support more than once while he was there. The new believers in Philippi were faithful then, and Paul is bringing that faithfulness to mind and using it as context for the support he has just received by way of Epaphroditus. The Philippians have been faithful supporters for many years. That brings us to verse 17. Verse 17 reads, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. It has been observed by many commentators that Paul's thanks to the Philippians seems a bit lukewarm. He seems hesitant, as if he is reluctant to accept support. To perhaps paraphrase, Thanks for the money you sent. It was very kind, but I'm not asking for more. Paul makes it very clear elsewhere in his letters that he preferred to earn his own way. In Acts eighteen two 2-4, we learn that when Paul arrived in Corinth, he met Aquila and Priscilla. They were tent makers by trade, and Paul was too. He stayed with them and worked with them. Paul argued in the synagogue on the Sabbath, preaching the gospel, but he was working to support himself also. We also get some insight into why Paul did this from his other letters. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul makes a scriptural argument that those engaged in full-time ministry are entitled to be supported in their material needs by the church. He is quite emphatic about it, in fact. In verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 9, he writes, those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But Paul goes on to emphasize that he himself does not wish to claim this right. In verses 15 through 19 of 1 Corinthians 9, Paul writes as follows. But I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing this to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm entrusted with a commission. What then is my reward? Just this, that in my preaching, I may make the gospel free of charge, not making full use of my right in the gospel. This is easy enough to understand. Paul chose to largely forego his right to support because he thought it increased his credibility. In his day as now, there were false teachers who told people that they wanted to, what they wanted to hear and took donations. Paul sought to set himself apart and show that he had no agenda but the gospel. But brothers and sisters, this was an extraordinary circumstance. We should not read it as a prescription for all of those who labor in full-time ministry. Paul is clear that such men are entitled to be supported by the church. And consider, don't we want them to? If a man is gifted to preach the gospel, isn't it better in most cases for him to do that full-time rather than to spend most of his productive hours doing some other work? Paul, however, did not ask for financial support, and he seems to have received it somewhat reluctantly, but he did accept it. At the time he wrote the epistle to the Philippians, Paul was a prisoner. I don't know if he was able to engage in tent making or some other paid work while imprisoned, but some of his other writings suggest he was not. It is likely that he was in material need at the time Epaphroditus arrived, which brings us to verse 18. Verse 18 reads, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. In the first part of verse 18, Paul seems to be telling the Philippians not to send him more money. Whether that was out of fear that they would go without themselves or part of his general reluctance to take money for ministry, we don't know. At face value, the statement is no doubt true. Paul's immediate needs were met by the gifts the Philippians sent. Paul then shifts gears from the commercial language he used above um, and to the language of worship and sacrifice. He calls them a fragrant offering, which clearly evokes Old Testament worship where offerings were burned. He says the gifts were a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This makes us think of the offerings brought by Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Not all offerings are accepted, but the gifts of the Philippians were. The sacrificial giving of the Philippians in support of Paul's ministry was heartfelt and sincere. Paul recognizes it for what it is, an outpouring of love from those whose lives have been changed by the gospel. Next we turn to verses 19 and 20, which we'll take together. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory, In Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. James Montgomery Boyce called this the greatest promise in the Bible. Paul is telling the Philippians that God will provide for their needs. We suspect that the church in Philippi has given sacrificially to support Paul and meet his material needs. While commending them, he is reminding them that God knows their needs and will not forsake them. Just as Paul had his own material needs fully met by their generosity, so God will meet theirs. Paul is not able to do this, but his God is. Just as Christ promised in Matthew 6, 31-33, our Heavenly Father knows what we need, and he will meet those needs abundantly. Brothers and sisters, do not make the mistake of reading the phrase, in glory, here as meaning that God is going to meet the needs of the Philippians in a future state of glory after this present life. While that is certainly true, this verse is talking about the present material needs. God will supply their needs, and he will do so generously. Paul then turns in verse 20 to a word of doxology. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's changing the subject again and is closing out his word of thanks to the Philippian church. He gives God the glory for their offerings. There is a three-way relationship in Paul's ministry between Paul, the Philippians, and God. God used the Philippians to supply Paul's material needs. God used both Paul and the Philippian church to advance the gospel. Paul then turns to final greetings in verses 21 and 22, which read as follows. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Unlike in some of his other letters, for example, 2 Timothy, Paul does not extend greetings to particular church members by name. He says, greet every saint instead. Perhaps he wanted to be careful not to leave anyone out, but it was also likely that the church had grown and changed since he was there. Most estimates place this epistle as having been written a decade after Paul's missionary visit to Philippi. Paul had a close relationship with the founding members of this church, but he would not have personally known those who were converted after he left. Paul goes on to extend greetings from the brothers who were with me, which seems to suggest that those who were in his immediate circle while he was imprisoned. In verse 22, Paul extends greetings from all the saints, which may suggest the broader church where he is located, likely in Rome. The final clause of verse 22 tells us that there are members of the emperor's household who have been converted to Christianity. We don't know why Paul includes this detail, but it likely encouraged the Philippians to know that the faith had made such inroads. There is, according to the commentators, no documentation to indicate that any high Roman officials had converted at this point, so we suspect that these are low-ranking members of the staff, such as gardeners, cooks, and housekeepers. But the gospel was going forth, and Paul's ministry, which the Philippian church had supported, was bearing fruit. Finally, Paul concludes with verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is a typical way for Paul to close one of his letters. He finishes with a prayer, a benediction for his audience. Now, brothers and sisters, we come to the application of the text, the so what, if you will. I'm going to make three points of application, and they all involve money. First, the laborer deserves his wages. In the church, we have certain men, and by extension their families, who are called to forego worldly occupations and who have dedicated themselves full time to the ministry of the word. In Presbyterianism, these men are overwhelmingly, but not exclusively, ordained as teaching elders. Most TEs are church pastors, although some labor in other ministry contexts, such as our dear brother, Fred Sloan, who works with the prison discipleship ministry. We also have foreign missionaries who have set aside their personal affairs and gone out to the nations for us. Often, these are families who go together. We have men who have devoted themselves to ministry on college campuses, both with Reformed University Fellowship and other similar ministries. What do these men have in common? They are often a diverse group with a variety of personal backgrounds educational credentials, and personal circumstances. But what they all have in common is that they are owed their living by the church. I spoke earlier about Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 9 that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul attributes this principle to Christ himself, and rightly so. In Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sent out the disciples, telling them to carry no purse, bag, or sandals, he admonished them, that the laborer deserves his wages. There is no question that the Bible tells us to support the material needs of those who have devoted themselves full time to preaching the word. The Philippians are commended in our text this evening for their consistent, faithful financial support of gospel ministry, and we should strive to be worthy of the same. Our PCA Book of Church Order, which sets out the rules subordinate to the scripture about how our church operates, contains the language that is supposed to be used in preparing the written call for a pastor. It provides that the church is supposed to provide the pastor with sufficient compensation to be free from worldly cares and avocations. In other words, the church should support the pastor and his family such that he does not have to work outside the church. Now, I do not wish to overstate this. If a church lacks the financial means to support a full-time pastor, it is, in my view, permissible to call someone to serve by vocationally. A man can choose to be a tentmaker, as Paul was, but this should not be the usual case. At our presbytery meetings, whenever a man comes for examination to be ordained or installed as a pastor, I rise and ask him if the salary and housing allowance in the call meets his material needs. The job of a pastor is both vital and hard. Such men should not have to worry about paying their bills or putting food on their table. Brothers and sisters, All Saints has a long history of faithful giving. I exhort you to continue not only to meet the material needs of our full-time pastors, but also to look for ways you can help and encourage those who labor for the gospel. Give joyfully to support missionaries and evangelists at home and abroad. Such gifts are fragrant offerings before God, and he will bless you for your generosity. Point two, you can't take it with you. Thinking a bit more broadly about our financial resources, I want to challenge you all a bit this evening. As believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are all works in progress. If you are putting your faith in Christ, then your eternal destiny is secure. You can rest assured in the sure hope of eternal life with Christ. But in this life, despite our justification, we are works in progress. Despite our sure hope, we wrestle with remaining sin. Paul talks very clearly in Romans seven about how he struggled. The Philippian church did too. The spirit and the flesh are at war within all of us. How we spend our money is a barometer of our spiritual health. The Philippians gave sacrificially to support Paul's ministry. And what a privilege to do so! Imagine if Paul were alive in the flesh today and you could write a check or maybe send him a Venmo payment to cover his living expenses while he carried the message of the gospel to those who have never heard it. Would any of us hesitate to do so? Well, Paul's no longer accepting material gifts. He's in heaven with Christ. But there are many faithful workers who are carrying the message of the gospel to the unreached. Some in Africa, some in China, and some in the United States. If you're like me, and you're sometimes discouraged by the decline of our culture and the moral decay of our society, we have vast numbers of adults in this country who've never been to church. We shake our heads at the news reports and survey results about the decline of Christianity. I think it's more correct to say that there's been a decline of nominal cultural Christianity. But what is clear is that the USA is now a rich mission field. So brothers and sisters, if you have a marginal dollar in your hand beyond what you need to meet your basic needs, consider how you might spend it. I'm not suggesting that it is sin to spend money on clothes or cars or vacations, certainly not. But we should consider that all those things are fleeting. Money invested in kingdom work will not only bear fruit, it is building something permanent. The kingdom of God is, in fact, the only thing you can invest in that is permanent. Kings and leaders die. Nations crumble. The greatest human works will turn to dust. Consider this, brethren. How many of you can name all of your great-grandparents? Even if you can, we are in the South, after all, do you know anything about them? What they loved, their character, their values? In almost all cases, the answer is no. Our lives are brief. And as it says in Ecclesiastes, all our works are vanity. When you draw your last breath, you won't be thinking about jewelry or cars or houses or your brokerage account. Death has a way of focusing us on what is important. So take a look at your credit card and bank statements. Consider the choices you make with the resources you have and think about shifting more of your marginal dollar to support those who labor for the gospel. Nothing else will last but to quote Martin Luther, his kingdom is forever. Finally, It isn't yours anyway. Finally, and following up on that last point, I want to come back to what Paul says about the gifts of the Philippians being a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. How would you like to have an apostle say that about a gift you made to the church? Well, that is not likely to happen directly, but we know from this text that we can make financial offerings that are pleasing to God. Most of us Support ourselves by working in one way or another, whether it is by running a business, working a job, or caring for children at home while a spouse works to earn money. Some of us are retired and living from money or benefits we earned earlier in life. It's easy to tell yourself a story about where your resources come from. If I have a sandwich on the plate in front of me to eat for lunch, I have it because I went to work and earned a paycheck. I then went to the grocery store and bought the bread meat and cheese then I made a sandwich and after I eat it I'll wash the plate God had nothing to do with it this is a materialist story that is a story told by the secular western world for sure we know better right we know that all we have comes from God the Bible says so but I exhort you this evening brothers and sisters to ask yourselves if you aren't functionally closer to the secular view than the biblical one Do you really think and behave as if all your needs are met by God? Or do you really think that you meet them by your own effort? This is an important point because if you functionally think that the balance in your bank account or your other assets and possessions were acquired by your own effort alone, then it naturally follows that you are free to dispose of them as you wish. But if you recognize that all you have is from God, you will think differently. What you have is from the Lord, and you have the opportunity as a believer in Christ to offer it back to him. In his commentary on Philippians, writing about our passage this evening, John Calvin wrote this, Alas for our indolence, which appears in this, that while God invites us with so much kindness to the honor of priesthood, and even puts sacrifices in our hands, we nevertheless do not sacrifice to him, And those things which were set apart for sacred oblations, we not only lay out for profane uses, but squander them wickedly upon the most polluted contaminations. For the altars on which sacrifices from our resources ought to be presented are the poor and the servants of Christ. To the neglect of these, some squander their resources on every kind of luxury, others upon the palate, others upon immodest attire, others upon magnificent dwellings." Please don't hear this as as if Calvin suggests that we are actual priests sacrificing for sins. He is speaking metaphorically. But the picture he paints for us is vivid. The Apostle Paul has commended the Philippians for the material support they have given him. He tells his original audience that their gifts are sacrifices acceptable to the Lord. In other words, they are good works that please God. Not to merit salvation, of course, but to show our gratitude and obedience to God. Calvin calls us out on this. God has given us all some measure of money. Most of us have more than we strictly need. The amount of that varies, of course, but we all have something we can give. Are we going to squander it on luxuries such as rich food, immodest clothes, or big houses, or are we going to offer it back to God by giving sacrificially for kingdom work? Brothers and sisters, I urge and exhort you to consider the words of the apostle and the actions of the Philippian church. Most of us will not be called to martyrdom as Paul was. But we are all called to sacrifice for the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word and for allowing us to study it this evening. Please impress it upon our hearts and conform us ever more to the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.